Sean McKay, Mr. Brennan Hartford, Esquire, doing a little update on CTEC. So we got the meeting tomorrow. Soma, Brennan, how you doing, man? Hey, Sean. What's up, bud? Yeah, your eyes look beautiful in here. We're hanging out in the uh, rescue lab with uh, a bunch of sawzaws and rope gear and grinds. Got an ambience grind. I got uh, Adderall, some beer, dip. Monster Rehab. Monster Rehab. I think we're squared away for this uh, podcast. So we got the annual, uh, or one of the semi-annual CTEC meetings tomorrow. So this is more for the people that can't make it to kind of give you an update on what's going to be discussed. And then because of the technical genius of Brennan Hartford, it should be streamed. Yes, we will be uh, good to go to live stream the meeting tomorrow. Um Obviously, it all depends on the Wi-Fi available at the hotel where our room is, but I don't foresee any issues with that. So. And this is on the Facebook? Yes, this will be on CTEC's Facebook page. All right. So uh, definitely check in on that one. That should be exciting. Yeah. I did that with bunny ears. Exciting. <laughs> um, so what we're looking at is the agenda tomorrow. So for those that can't make it, uh, there's going to be a board of directors update, and then we get into... The new executive director position. Yeah. So hit on that, man. What's uh, that whole thing? So that's Sarah Kessler. Yeah. Got that position. Yeah, kind of a big thing for... Um, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah, kind of a big deal for CTEC. Uh, those that don't know, um, everybody involved with CTEC from the executive committee, board of directors, board of advisors are all volunteers. They all do this on their own time, uncompensated, and they have the real jobs in the real world to, you know, support their families and all that good stuff. So... A lot of times, you know, things don't get done in a timely manner. Discussing that, uh, CTEC decided it was time to uh, go outside and find an executive director that could support the day-to-day operations of the committee. Um, so and some of those, it's like we just get, you know, and we're the same way, but everybody does have real jobs, you know, and so right. whether they're medics or cops or working in ERs and crap like that, um, we we know we've needed the everybody's had the desire to get stuff out in a more timely fashion and the the minutes and the updates and and crap that's going on and where classes are and and keeping everybody apprised of what's going on and we just really had no one i think at one point reed was going to try and pimp out some residents or something like that but then that's like a child labor law yeah 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 that didn't uh that was kind of shot down that didn't go over website crap and things like that yeah all the day-to-day stuff that that you know should be being done and due to you know other commitments from everybody as part of CTEC, you know, slip through the cracks or don't get done in a timely manner that we would like. So decided to do a search, find an executive director, and Sarah Kessler was the one who ultimately was hired by the committee. Cool. And so what are her, what's she doing there? Uh, kind of a little bit of what we talked about. She's going to, um, she, she's a non-voting member of the board of directors. Um, she's going to direct, oversee day-to-day operations of, of the committee, kind of a lot of the things we've already discussed, you know, website, you know, uh, um, social media, those types of things. Uh, but she's also going to get involved with um, uh, fundraising, something that uh, has always been a, a sticking point for the committee. Um, uh, so hopefully with somebody permanently in this position, she'll be able to uh, devote some time to that. And I think her background too, man. She's uh, I think she's right still to this day she works as the Arlington County Department of Public Safety, Communication, and Emergency Management, and handles a bunch of stuff in the National Capital Region Incident Management Team and 
and works the Until Help Arrives program and stuff like that as the program manager there. Yeah, so she's well-versed in the first responder community, which is where and we live. And whatnot, maybe. Right, and maybe. whatnot. Sure. Whatnot, okay. right, exactly. Um, so she's, you know, familiar with, you know, like I said, the first responder community and what we do for a living, and she's able to move within those communities relatively easy, I would think. So if you got any complaints, hit them to Sarah. There you go. Get a far butt. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Awesome. But um, she'll be at the meeting. Uh, you'll probably see her if you're not at the meeting on the live stream, so you'll meet her there. I'm sure there'll be some little introduction by reading. So awesome. You know, send her your well wishes, please. Yep. Uh, we also have the uh, Australian Tactical Medical Association doing a brief on some crap they're doing uh, down under, if yeah. I could say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, invited them to kind of, they were, were at our meeting in Rancho Cucamonga uh, and also at Soma last year. Um, good dudes, hard work, and they're trying to do some good stuff down under down there. And uh, just kind of going to give us a brief. I guess their, their association out there is just kind of getting off the ground. This might be their second year, but don't hold me to that. I'm not too well versed on that. But um, solid dudes, solid medics. So we're looking forward to them giving us an update on what they have going on. No, that's cool. Was it, David, was there, was it, with that page, it was like they posted it, I think it was them, wasn't it, that uh, they had the misprint in the newspaper down in Australia, and it was promoting some of the classes they were doing, and the newspaper screwed up and said they are training them as terrorists instead of anti-terrorism. Really? Oh, it was hysterical. Oh, yeah, they actually, they, I think their association actually posted it because it was just hysterical. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, those dudes are hysterical. <laughs> So come to see some terrorism training, apparently, right. but, uh, <laughs> from your first responders. <laughs> yeah, that was good. Um, all right, what else do we got going on this? Um, they got a, uh, we got the improving survivability analysis of the pulse autopsies. Yeah, um, I know that's been something that's floating around on the internet a little bit. There's been a couple documents out there. So um, I think this is just an extension of that paper that Reed wrote mm -hmm. uh, a year and a half, was it two years ago, on... The wounding patterns for civilian active shooter events and taking a look at those and seeing, you know, if it jives with, you know, with everything we've been doing so far. Cool. Uh, do we need to make any changes or any adjustments? Awesome. Uh, we got uh, best practice. We got TECC for first receivers or first, I would imagine that's the first care receivers uh, yeah. for hospitals. Yep. Uh, that's taking a look at the Virginia Hospital Center. So that's the other guidelines. So if you look at the guidelines that are currently out there, uh, I guess it's been like, what, a year and a half or something where we started breaking them out. Yeah, about so that. So once we, we used to have all the CTEC guidelines were kind of thrown into one large guideline. And we've broken them out into the various disciplines. So we have the first care provider for the bystander mm -hmm. type stuff. We have it for uh, kind of a law enforcement, uh, first responder, duty to act. Mm -hmm. Then it goes into the ALS, BLS. Right. Uh, then we have the the first receivers type right. of stuff. So it's one of those things where I, I guess you could play a couple roles more on the extreme side for people to understand would be, you know, if we look at something like maybe the Platte Canyon incident in Colorado, which is kind of in the middle of, of nowhere, like you are in a pretty remote area. And that first hospital may not be that trauma center where you want to take them, but you need to take them to the closest facility to at least stabilize them to get them flown out, you know, potentially to Denver or something like that. It's uh, kind of an educational thing for those hospitals that, that aren't technically trauma centers, but may find themselves uh, right next door to where an event occurs and a bunch of casualties will be shown on. Right. Is that about right? Yeah. Yeah, I would concur with that. So, yeah, so they're hitting that. Uh, NTOA, Rescue Task Force, course update. 
Yeah, so I'm not sure who's presenting that one. Um, is that, is if, Kevin out on that one or no? I'm not sure if Kevin or I emailed Gibbons. I'm not sure if he, I thought he was going to be at the meeting. Um, but I'm not certain. I didn't get a response on the email on that. But um, I think it would be either him or Kevin giving an update on that. That'll be interesting. So Rescue Task Force, man. So we could actually talk about that for a second because I have no idea what the NTOA is briefing. So what we're probably going to talk about, or at least what will come out of my pie hole, will probably be in direct conflict on what they're trying to do at a national level. But we do a lot of research into this, and there's so many things out there with Rescue Task Force, and you know, we dealt with it in the um, San Bernardino AAR uh-huh. uh, a little bit. And I think you know a lot of people want a Rescue Task Force guideline. They want like the easy button, right? And that's typically what law enforcement and, and fire departments want is, hey, let's codify this response. So we have something on there, and, um, and, and with that, and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit because we're going to be talking about NFPA 3000, but you know, the answer probably isn't like, hey, we need to make sure that we have two law enforcement officers, mm-hmm. a minimum of four you know, fire personnel. They need to have X, Y, and Z just because you can't predict when that's going to happen. So I think that would be a, a grave mistake. And you know, t- I talked to Reed about this quite a bit, who... You know, obviously Arlington was kind of the birth of the the rescue task force name, at least. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, being able to codify it in that manner. But they did a really good job when they brief it, and they're very explicit when they talk about, "Hey, this is what works for us. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to change it for what works with you." Yeah. And it seems like at a national level, no one understands that. They just want, "Hey, what does it say? Put it down, and then that's how we'll do it." But then when the event occurs, like. You know, yeah, we can fix it for Virginia Tech. We can make it work for San Bernardino. We can make it work for Pulse. And then the next thing you know, somebody's in Las Vegas shooting from 32 floors up, and your crap just fell freaking apart, and it doesn't work. And that's the problem with creating these strict SOPs without having the ability to call audibles is you will never guess what that next attack is. And when you make it such a strict standard without the ability for people to think and adapt dynamically, you pretty much set yourself up for jackassery. Yeah, I agree. I, I, and you hit it right on the head. I think you have to keep it principle-based, um, you know, to fit what your capabilities are and ditch the strict SOPs, like you were saying. You have to give people the, 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 the you, you know, you have to delegate the authority to make audibles, like you said. You right. Know. I mean, it's something we do day-to-day, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, right. if you're on a fire scene, right, you're you're able to adapt dynamically to what's going on mm-hmm. on that scene. If you're, you know, in law enforcement, you're able to adapt dynamically on, on what your threat or, or, or what you're doing is going on and make those calls. Um, and the same exactly. thing, you know, when you get into something as complex as, uh, as an active shooter event, you know, and we'll talk about this more when we talk about the AARs and, and a P3000, <laughs> right. like, if, if you don't, like, you're not correct. Right, right. If you, if you're creating these strict SOPs, you you are not on the right side of what you're supposed to be doing. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. All right. What else we got? Um, all right. So we got a little bit of a uh, CCTA grant for first responder resource library for Arlington County. They'll talk about. Yep. We get into NFP NFPA three thousand update, which is a big deal. So let's not talk about that now. Let's bump through this other stuff because yep. NFPA three thousand. We'll talk about that just because a lot of people may not have even heard that it got dropped. What like in the last two weeks. So it's uh, it's a good thing, no matter what you may have heard. Uh, people need to understand NFPA and what it is and what it isn't, and most people think what it is, uh, and that's actually wrong. Uh, it's actually a very adaptable guideline that doesn't tell you, you know, that you have to do this and that. 
uh, it gives you the end goal principles. And they leave it up to the individual agencies on how they can do that because every agency is different with organic assets. Yep. So um, the next one is uh, is one close to my heart, <laughs> which is uh, we've got a Seaburn discussion going on uh, by a good friend of uh, mine from uh, Socks. So he just wrote an article in JSON, which is freaking incredible. He also presented at last SOMA. Yeah. And, it's a uh, good presentation. Wrote, yeah, great presentation. Uh, his name is Devin DeFeo. Uh, if you get a subscription uh, to JSON, check out his article. And it just shows you a new way to consider managing the casualties in a, in a Cambio Seaburn uh, operation. And what he did was was an incredible, uh, super smart guy. Uh, I've known him for quite a few years, and you know have like been blessed enough to you know work and learn a lot from from him through the years. But the way that he simplified a psychotically complex ass wound of a response, like can buy, like who wants that, right? Like, um, and then dealing with the casualties in there, and the complexity of that is a freaking nightmare. That I think we are woefully underprepared for. Um, as much as we white table and pat each other on the ass, and like, hey, we're good. Yeah. We are so wrong. Uh, and when you, when you start looking at that, it's, it's problematic. And he did a great job because he's had to write a lot of these, these Seaburn type things to the, to the assaulter type level mm-hmm. and get them to understand what, what they're going into and how that casualty management is going to work, and so he basically created uh, March squared. So everybody's pretty familiar with March uh, yep. if they do any TECC or TC3 type stuff with massive bleeding, airway, respirations. Kind of gives you a, a quick guideline and prioritization of, of your assessment and treatments. But he then squared it and did a binomial number. But uh, he uh, did phenomenal to where it's the M then becomes for like mask adjustments and air. Uh, a is for antidotes, and you know these are things that are going to be in the hot area. So uh, your operators can just learn MAR. Uh, your your medics and intermediate people need to know the march. And he took it so you go through march the first one, then you apply the second march through, and pick up on those critical interventions for that C burn, and really simplified a very complex issue um, in a way that you understand and now in your head you can you can think about and he also dispelled a lot of the myths that people have with that chem bio you know i think the point in his paper when he talked about you know for those of you that have responded to anybody with uh, hiv or hep c like you're much more risk than you are in your normal chem bio on that you mm-hmm. know um but uh, just an incredible article uh i believe you can also download his presentation on the soma website it is it is on the soma website from last year's presentations so this year he's going to be presenting again, and uh, unfortunately uh, we're going to have to end up saying goodbye to him, and, uh, and he's taking a leave of absence from his operational thing because he got accepted into flipping med school on a uh, SOCOM uh, scholarship. So he's, Good for him. Uh, yeah, no, it's awesome, man. Like, I hate to see him roll, but uh, he's going to be a pimp as a doctor. So, uh, so yeah, so he's leaving, so uh, we got him riled in and uh, I saw him a couple weeks ago and so we were able to bribe him enough to come in and speak uh, at our CTEC meeting so that'll be really good and I think we're going to end up doing a podcast with him uh, probably over some beers uh, and so it should be it should be solid this time at SOMA since we may not be able to probably we may not be able to Facebook live stream whatever we do uh, 
for his portion at one o'clock. So we will be able to do a podcast and we'll, we'll post that up with him where you'll actually hear it from the horse's mouth, but uh, phenomenal dude did a great job doing it. And, and really what he has done there is being taken through, uh, you know, regular SF teams to federal agencies to, you know, hopefully down to municipalities here soon enough. And uh, so everybody's kind of on the same book on that one. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just based on his presentations last year, we're revamping our C. Bernie response within our team and my agency, and it's just, it's hard to argue that it doesn't make sense. Yeah. The other good part of that, too, is we linked him up with the TECC, the CTEC working group Mm -hmm. for C. Bernie. And so Ryan, I think, is going to make contact with them, and, and I think they'll be able to start integrating that stuff really soon. So look out for the small working group of the Seaburn, uh, if that's of an interest to you, and check out some of the stuff that they'll be putting out here soon because I think we're going to model that over there. And I think there's a little bit more complexity for that municipal response that we're going to have to rely on Devin a little bit just because you have so many agencies that don't won't necessarily train together where when you're looking at SOCOM or you're looking at a DOD, they put all those assets in place. Everybody's on the same page where yeah. with us, you know, you're going to have different municipalities responding. They may have different... You know, air packs, and we have different this, and we have different guidelines for that. And you just have, I think, more variables that do not work together on a consistent basis than when they do their full mission profile trainups and stuff. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And, and, and specifically for us, um, kind of equate it to how you know you've disrupted rescue and dispelled a lot of the myths. This will disrupt, yeah, the C. Bernie response specifically in the tactical world, but also. Uh, we're seeing getting a little pushback because we work very closely with our fire department. Um, but when we broached some of the subject on some of the things he talks about, especially when it comes to decon and stuff like that, you get some pushback from them because they're not understanding, you know, what we're trying to accomplish and the fact that they're entrenched in old dogma that may may, may possibly not hold true. You know, especially when it comes to decon, you know, in our world. Sure. You know, and I think that's interesting because, you know, I think describing it to rescue is really valid. Um, You know, for all these times, there's so many of us and so many departments still out there that are basing their guidelines as gospel Mm -hmm. on certain techniques, right? Wrap three, pull two, right? It's the gold standard, right? Um, When all of a sudden now you have groups that are actually doing research on it. So, so much of that thing, those things that we've been following for so many years are theoretical. They've never actually been validated. It right. just seems like it should hold true. Right. And and it seems valid enough. And then it's taught as fact. Right. And, you know, that's what's going on in the rescue world right now. So, you know, everything we thought about Prussix, you know, is turning south. Like, it's actually not true. Come to find out, no one ever actually did testing on them until now. <laughs> you know, about anchors, same thing. The Rap 3 Pull 2, all of a sudden the basket hitch is stronger. Both are safe. But that basket hitch, which like you couldn't, no respectable rescuer could ever do, um, is actually stronger, and it breaks with with tighter variances, more predictable than a wrap through pull too, which no one ever thought of, but no one ever did testing. It was all theoretical. And that's the thing. Now you have research and data to back up your decisions. Sure. Yeah. You know, and I think that's the thing. Is that's I think that's what Devin will present and show you is is when you look at it under data points, actual research, them looking at things. Um, there's not a lot of us on the civilian side that uh, have firsthand knowledge with you know, nerve agents and crap like that, man. Right. Thank God. And, right. And, uh, <laughs> but at the same that. time, when you look at it and you have the ability to, to be able to pull data points out of those things and what's actually happened, what's actually 
the issues, uh, it'll change your perspective. And I think that's that's kind of what is coming through there is, is a little bit of a disruptive type of movement into the Seaburn thing, which is we drastically need. Yep. Wholeheartedly agree with that. All right, what else we're we doing? We're doing some civilian freeze-dried plasma. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing that presentation. Um, it's something I'm interested in for, for our team, so I'd be curious to hear what they say. I know it's there's a lot of FDA issues being dealt with that, even on a, the DOD side. I don't know if those have gotten worked out, but I'm curious to see what uh, what's presented. Yeah. Uh, after that, we're going to talk about uh, uh, hypoglycemia and the lethal triad. Another one I'm interested in hearing. You're a boring-ass dude, man. I am. Okay, I, I cool. have nothing to contribute other than... I bring nothing to the table, right. just so everybody knows. Yeah, so I, at least I admit that. I know <laughs> No, it, it, it could. I, th- <laughs> I think that's, uh, that's going to be the, the quiet one, right? It's going to launch out and just grab your attention. I'm kind of kidding well, in a way, but I'm not. Well, it could I, be good. It could uh, be cool. Uh, the lethal triad is where TECC sure. lives. I mean, that's that's our whole wheelhouse. So, this to me, this is going to be an Don't interesting... Don't go preaching to me, dude. Seriously. Hey, you you know, know what? I'm preaching to the choir. Oh, yeah, that's good. That's good stuff. Um, and then we're going to have our, obviously, our open guideline discussion yeah. where everybody can bitch, suggest, and, and do all that kind of crap, which yep. uh, is always fun. Yes, it is. It, it tends to get entertaining yeah, sometimes. There's, there's, like, no shortage of some jackassery. It's awesome. I love that. I'm curious to see if there will be any. And there's always one. some good points in there, right? Absolutely. everybody, And, and that's the beauty of the TECC is that we have, you know, the way it was designed is to have input from all – from, you know, the newest rookie firefighter, cop, you know, EMS medic, up to, you know, the the, the, the most experienced doc that's, you know, teaching new residents and everybody in between involved in the first responder world. And it leads to good discussions and good points and, you know, people talking about all their experiences that... And arguments. I love, I love, I don't think we've ever had one where something hasn't broken out, which is just fun to get in. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Hopefully it'll be on Facebook. That's the plan. Should be. That's the Capture plan, that Stan. crap. I have a GoPro going in the back just there to catch go. anything close report. There, there. Some, some close in work? Uh, I'll try to. I'll see. I'll see what's up, man. We'll get into some wet work. Um, all right. So probably what we want to talk about a little bit here is NFPA 3000. Okay. So I want to say, and uh, so we got a couple, couple pipe hitters that were on that um, that were really good. And when you look over the committee, there's there's some really good people on there. Um, and so take that as for what you will. There are some identified good people. Okay. So <laughs> uh, I'm sure there's some there's some uh, other folks on there too that, uh, yeah. So anyways, so NFPA 3000, just for everybody's fidelity, I want to say it, it kind of almost was um, – not instigated, but uh, kind of leveraged a little bit through with DHS uh, as, as a partial in there. That was my understanding, yeah. but I was not involved, you know, uh, in any of the discussions very early on. Right. I just found out about it actually not all that long ago when it was, when the draft came out for comments. Yep. So, but yeah, that was, that's my understanding of it. So I had to write some stuff up as kind of an intro to people. So obviously I do a bunch of stuff in NFPA. Mm-hmm when we do rescue training and whether we're doing it for tactical teams or SWAT teams or we're doing it for US SOCOM, we use NFPA rescue guidelines, specifically NFPA 1006. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people look at NFPA as uh, like, how are you teaching SOCOM with firefighter standards? And what people need to understand is NFPA is not a strict firefighter standard. And it just goes that way because it's the National Fire Protection, you know, it's (laughs) in the name. 
and but realize that NFPA is used. You know, for instance, NFPA 1006 has been used in PJ programs and and other units within SOCOM and climbing teams for for quite a while as a as a requirement. Right. Because when you're looking at NFPA, NFPA is based on uh, usually JPRs or job performance requirements, and so that's one thing to understand. The, biggest thing for civilians to understand when they're going into NFPA 3000 is what an authority having jurisdiction is. Because when you read that, you're going to see AHJ everywhere. And that's the beauty of NFPA is when you understand and can implement an effective authority having jurisdiction, you realize that you are the owner of your guidelines. Mm -hmm. And in NFPA just provides a structure that can help provide uniformity in its response with different agencies, and that's kind of the beauty of it. So, NFPA is used with you know in rescue world, right? For vertical teams from industrial to OSHA type, all over the place, will follow those things because you really can't do vertical work and not follow NFPA. If you even if you didn't want to, right. you're going to because all it is is the outcomes, the principles. So when you look at let's say rope rescue chapter five in the new NFPA guidelines. It has job performance requirements like you need to be able to ascend a rope. You need to be able to descend a rope. You need to be able to lower a casualty. You need to be able to create a simple mechanical advantage. You need to be able to create a single point or a multi-point anchor. It doesn't tell you, one, how how you have to do it. You can do it any damn way you want to. And it doesn't tell you what equipment you have to use. And that's kind of the beauty. So we could be teaching an NFPA course for a fire department USAR team. And using typical steel carabiners, NFPA G-rated, you know, 40 kilonewton ropes and carabiners and stuff like that. And at the same time, be doing a, a class for, for U.S. SOCOM right next to it using 7.5 millimeter rope uh, and, and some Dyneema slings. Yeah. And we are reaching the same job performance requirement, and that's fine. Right. Right, because they do not dictate, and, it, and that's the beauty of NFPA is they do not handcuff you like people think they do. You know, and automatically people are like, oh, God, we're doing NFPA. we got to use steel this and 12.5 millimeter rope. That's an, actually a complete fallacy. Zero. Nothing in the operational guidelines that tells you anything about using this piece of equipment or that piece of equipment. Um, you have to reach the job performance requirement. And to put it into perspective of why that's true is you have people that, let's say, are a fire department. Let's say Rancho Cucamonga is a good example, man. I've had the privilege of... Uh, playing around those dudes some. So, yeah, they've got an urban tech rescue team, mm-hmm. right? And in that, yeah, man, you're pulling up your fire trucks, you're doing a, a rescue on you know somebody off a building or something like that? Absolutely, man. You're, you're rocking it with an SOP, and if that SOP is 12.5 millimeter and steel stuff, that's awesome. The other side of Rancho is they've got some canyons in there that are rough as crap to get to. And when you're hiking in, potentially a couple kilometers, you're not going to want to carry 12 and a half millimeter rope, nor do you need to, right? right? And so that's the leeway is, is NFPA is like, hey, we don't know what your response area is. You know, if you're hiking in there, you're not going to want steel crap, especially right. if you're a three-man quick, you know, three or four-man QRF right. and do a tech rescue that's in a canyon off a waterfall. Like, you're not setting that crap up. Uh, you're going to want your aluminum carabiners, your 7075 aluminum carabiners. You're going to want some quick descent devices um, because it's a lighter load to, to carry in. And that's why they don't handcuff you is, is you know your response area. Right. They don't, but they do tell you what you need, what, what those capabilities should be to be considered a professional qualification. And so with NFPA 3000, you're going to see that it's laid out very similar. Um, you know, law enforcement, right, needs to have 
these capabilities, you know, a, a breaching capability. They need to be prepared in case there's fires a weapon type of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, they need to be able to do rapid patient extractions. They need to be able to integrate with a rescue task force. They need to be able to do these things, right? Um, the one commonality just for everybody too is uh, TECC is the standard throughout NFPA 3000. So they made it really easy. So when you look at chapter 12 and chapter 13, those are the ones you'll want to look at. Uh, you want to look at the whole document. It's actually a very well-written document and bringing up Rancho Cucamonga Ofer, uh, who's on the CTEC committee, was, mm -hmm. was on this and did a phenomenal job uh, with awesome. that. And so, so TECC is the standard throughout. And so you're looking at the law enforcement first responder mm -hmm. uh, guidelines for the most part, right? There's some, obviously some other departments like yourself where you're a medic uh, in a large uh, police department. Uh, but also, you know, look at Los Angeles Sheriff's Department has mm -hmm. medics running hard on there. Maryland's another, you know, so there's yep. quite a few that are out there. So on those, you'll be following the, the ALS ones. Right. Uh, but for a whole, you're looking at basically two main guidelines when you're looking at that as a whole in NFP 3000, which is the, the duty to act first responder and the ALS BLS on there. So it's nice because we're not having to be like, oh, should we teach a modified TC3? Are we teching a, is it BCON? Is it NIC? Is it, are we stopping bleed? I don't know. You know, right. it's straight up TECC. So it makes it pretty, pretty easy to pretty do. Pretty cut and dry. Yeah. That, yeah. And most of the things that are in there, um, we either have in our guidelines or we have working groups that are addressing those things that are in NFPA. Right. Uh, you have anything on there? Because I was going to go through the who, what, when, where, why type of thing. No, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, All right, so some stuff we have written down there. So when you look at who, who, who is this written for? Uh, I'm going to do some quotes out of NFPA, so I'm not uh, uh, misspeaking on behalf of, of their guidelines. But basically, it's for all first responders. Um, kind of specific to law enforcement, FD, and EMS. But there is some other programs as far as the public integration, which would go more into the first care provider guidelines and things like that. Yeah. So under 1.1.2, they haven't changed the thing from the draft form. It basically says that this standard applies to any community, authority having jurisdiction, facility, and member of any organization who responds to or prepares for an active shooter or hostile event. So like we said before, NFPA reaches through their guidelines touch an enormous amount of people. Even when you get into like building construction and shit like that, like electricians and all this other stuff, has NFPA guidelines that they adhere to. So NFPA is not just for fire Got personnel. Okay. Um, and so when you look at this, the authority having jurisdiction, which I totally, like my Adderall hadn't kicked in or something, so I, I mentioned it and then I stopped. Um, your authority having jurisdiction is something every municipality needs to form on their own. So the authority having jurisdiction is who determines... Let's say what kind of kit you're rolling with, um, what your rescue task force looks like, uh, how often you train, how what is mandatory training, how many hours is it, how many times a year is it, uh, what kind of uh, PPE uh, are you going with. So all those things are left to the individual municipalities. So in a perfect world, I think your authority having jurisdiction depending on where you're at, would consist of you know some law enforcement representatives, some fire representatives, some EMS, maybe even throw an emergency management in there, like oregano or some shit in that mix, and maybe not. And uh, um, But basically, it's to the point, so everybody's kind of on the same page. Everybody kind of has a say on that. So it's not the fire department dictating this and, and PD just dictating this, and people don't know what they're dictating until the event, right? right and right. then they're like, you know, that would have been good to know. Uh, so it kind of puts everybody on the same page. So when you're looking at that from a rescue standpoint, 
an authority jur having jurisdiction is actually who determines what equipment you use. Are you using a 12 and a half? Are you using a seven and a half? Are you using a nine mil? Uh, what's the brake strength on it? Are you using aluminum or steel? Which ones are you using aluminum or steel when? When is it appropriate to do this? What equipment are we looking at bringing into it? And what is the process that that equipment has to go through for an evaluation before we go live with it? So that's all the authority having jurisdiction. So in the end, the authority having jurisdiction, which is you, right, your representatives from your department, that's who holds all the power of how that crap rolls, man, of how you implement the end state. So the end state is kind of what they put in there, and how you get there is how you want to get there. So what you're saying is the authority having jurisdiction actually fleshes out the principles that NFPA lays out. That's it, man. Yeah. They, they figure out how to – they map it, right? So they map how you get – how you reach them because every place is different, right? So right. you go into, you know, like we said before, Platte Canyon, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't have a large department there. Right. And you have volunteer – you know, FD and EMS or things like this in these rural areas sometimes. So how do you integrate that compared to, you know, it's not going to be the same damn way Miami does. Right. Um, and so they leave you that leeway of like, this is, this is what you need to, you know, really is the end state. How you get there is how you get there. We don't know what your organic assets are, right. what your budget is, how you do, but this is where, this is where you need to get to, um, to be able to, to be able to, meet the standards that need to be executed on those type of dynamic call-outs. Right. Cool. Um, so what uh, what NFPA 3000 is, basically an integrated standard for preparedness and response to an active shooter and or hostile event. 1.1 uh, of that standard says that this standard provides a minimum criteria for the level of competence required for responders organizing, managing, and sustaining an active shooter and or hostile event preparedness and response program based on the authority having jurisdiction function and assessed level of risk. So once again, it puts that whole thing on the HJ yep. uh, on there as far as what that is. Uh, when currently it was supposed to originally come out, I want to say in like April 2018, I think it just got released a couple weeks ago. Yeah, uh, I saw an, an email like two weeks ago or a week ago where you can go to NFPA's website now and you can download, get their, you can get the book, uh, and I think they also have something for your phone and crap like that. Did you see that? Or? I didn't see the phone thing. Um, I just know we posted it on uh, CTEC's Facebook page. There's a link to it. Uh, scroll down. You were right. It was either last week of April, first week of May, sometime it came out. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so with that, get your hands on it. Uh, it's a well-written document. But the thing is, is you have to know what's in that document or you're going to be led astray, right? And that happens in all guidelines. If you don't understand it, people are going to tell you what their interpretation is of it, and it may not be correct. And all of a sudden you think that, you know, at a national level, NFPA tells you you've got to have three officers and four firemen and this and this is the only time it can be considered a rescue task force. And then you read in there and you're like, holy crap, dude, it doesn't say crap about that. Um, so read, you got to read it yourself. It's a pretty easy reading document, but the power is in knowing what's in the, what's in those pages. Yeah. And the fact that the authority having jurisdiction is the powerhouse of that whole, that is like the mitochondria of, of it. And that is on you, right? That's on you to create. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you hit it right on the head. Don't, don't run out willy nilly and just take this document and woohoo. Now we got a rescue task force. Sit down, read it, digest it figure out how you're going to implement it within your current capabilities and then how you need to expand your capabilities to meet that standard. First of all, before you even go on, i got to compliment you on your use of willy-nilly. Uh, very rarely used, but uh, maybe it's a, maybe I haven't it's a used, myth. I haven't used it in a while either. You just pull so it out I on special occasions? Special occasions. <laughs> I, I, 
It hit home. It see, hit home. See, now from here from here forward, I'm only going to pull it out when I do a podcast with you. Okay. All right. I, I expect that. If I hear that come out one time on that Facebook live stream, I, so help me, I'll be pissed, man. <laughs> see, now I'm going to do that. No, <laughs> whatever. All right. So where as far as NFPA, so with some of the international folks and all, NFPA is used in um, other allied you know, countries and things like that that you'll see that in. Um, sometimes they tweak it a little bit, but when you look to Canada and some of these other areas, uh, a lot of times they follow uh, right online with, with NFPA type of, of guidelines. And the last being why, and I just kind of quoted right out of this because I think they, they state it perfect under 1.2, is the purpose of this document is to recommend the minimum program elements necessary for organizing, managing, sustaining an active shooter and or hostile event response program and to reduce or eliminate the risks, effect, and impact uh, of an organization jurisdiction as much as possible. So, you know, in the end, that's, that's the end state of NFPA. They state a lot of the things. So, like we said before, the things that you're going to be probably relevant for if you're not wanting to read through the whole thing. Uh, once you get to Chapter 12, that's the competencies for law enforcement. Uh, chapter 13 is the competencies for fire EMS. Chapter 14 is the PPE stuff. Um, which a lot of administrators and things like that are going to need to, to look into. Uh, chapter 15 is the training, and then Chapter 16 is the public education, and mm -hmm. that's kind of some of the outreach that goes into things like um, you know the, the Be the Help Until Help Arise program, mm -hmm. Stop the Bleed, and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So there's it's kind of multifaceted, but uh, it, it's fairly well put together. So when you look at a lot of those things, you know, for example, under law enforcement, you look at some of those key performance parameters or some of the competencies that goes into being able to perform TECC at your level, uh -huh. uh, understanding and implementing rescue task force and law enforcement rescue teams, mm -hmm. uh, having IFACs available and what those kind of are for, uh, being able to conduct casualty extraction techniques, uh, basic breaching techniques and basic fire attack operations if they run into it. Uh, and that's just kind of like a holistic kind of view. When you look into your, you know, your fire, it's kind of very similar as being able to don your appropriate PPE and identifiable garments. So that's when we get into like body armor and things mm -hmm. like that, that that may not be second nature to fire an EMS. Uh, provide self-medical aid through an IFAC, be able to conduct appropriate casualty movement. Uh, provide access for incoming responders. Uh, and this may include breaching. Uh, perform TECC, rescue task force, and assist with law enforcement rescue teams. Uh, perform building and vehicle stabilization so that's an interesting one that's kind of one of the outlier yeah, ones so when we is. look at some of the stuff that's in the UK uh, obviously potentially what what could have occurred uh, in New York with a vehicle attack mm -hmm. and things like that is being prepared for that uh, which which is good and also obviously some fire suppression because uh, that's kind of what you do uh, for those type of events which fires a weapon is is obviously been on everybody's radar for for a while mm -hmm. so that's sort of the thing when you look at it just like that in the public education portion. Uh, basically, those, those parameters that they talk about is, is identifying different hazards. And this is just educating the public on certain hazards like violence, fires a weapon, explosive, WMD, and potential future threats. talks about being able to educate them on the run, hide, fight type of things, uh, bleeding control, and, uh, and some of the recommended equipment out there, which is, is kind of really up to you and your authority having jurisdiction right. on there. So. Right. Anything else you, you'd want to add on that one? Did we kill that dead horse? Uh, kill that dead horse. Download a document. Read it. Make yep. it happen. Yep. You have any questions, hit hit us up uh, at CTEC. And uh, actually hit Sarah up, man. You know, don't hit us <laughs> up anymore. <laughs> don't, even, don't even try and get a hold of us. Baptism by fire for Sarah. That's it, man. That's it. Um, all right. What else we got, man? We're like 39 minutes. 
Yeah. Yeah, wanna, you want to talk? Let's talk San Bernardino, man. I'm kind of in. All right. Are you kinda, you're yawning a little bit. I was kind of... I am yawning. You got me up past my bedtime. Seriously? I was up at 3 o'clock this morning. Really? Yeah. Just when you were going to bed. Now I was to getting bed. I, Yeah. Well, we're, we were an hour apart. Right. So that would be 4 o'clock my time. Yes. And I still didn't go to bed till closer to 5, so... All right, so you had me beat. Yeah. I was... You, you were still up. Yeah. I was up while you were still up, and then you went to bed while I was flying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then I had to wake up and pick you up from the airport. You wouldn't have had it any other way. I wouldn't have, man. It was enjoyable. So, we are releasing the uh, actual county-sanctioned, yep, drumroll. Drumroll. Uh, sanction San Bernardino AAR for public release tomorrow. Um, we are going to probably put that on quite a few websites for download so we'll probably get it on social media and kind of give you can you do that can you put links yeah. to where or, or something you can tell people where to go for them or something um, like on i guess on facebook and shit you can right Instagram's yeah we'll figure, it, we'll, we'll figure it out wherever so, you want to. so we're going to be posting that so we're going to be releasing the the official san bernardino aar tomorrow yeah. uh there's been some other aar stuff out i think there was calm to chaos which came off which was very law enforcement specific really didn't get into the casualty management stuff at all and that came out pretty quick after that and i know that there's some internal things that were going on with that so i'm going to take like two seconds which is actually a lie right it'll be longer than two seconds um but just to talk about the background of of what you know we're looking at two years since that yeah, actually, we're looking. Yeah, a couple oh, years since couple, that event occurred, right? Coming up December. Yeah, it'll be. It'll actually be longer. It'll be three years in December, man. Well, really, right? Wow. It's happening oh, yeah, December second, yeah. twenty fifteen. That's right. So we're at a, you know just over the two year mark right now, and what's interesting about that is there was other other things that were going on, and so when that event occurred, the city of San Bernardino actually who is who responded the fire department all, was actually going bankrupt. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, remember that? And so yep. after that occurred, there was, you know, there was a lot of a lot of guys in there that were getting either absorbed by the county or they're going to different agencies. And so there was some disruption that was automatically going on in there. They did conduct a lot of interviews on a lot of things that we used in that AAR right after the event. So we had that to go off of. And then as they built into it, it was a long process. So you were involved in it. Your name's on, on that paper, too. Yeah. Um, so I and about that. there was a lot of us um, that were involved. We had some, some 18 Deltas from USASOC. We had guys that specialize in system management from you know, professors in physics that, that you know, one of them literally has been on every, uh, basically every, every nuclear plant uh, meltdown that has occurred since like Chernobyl with his feet on the ground, including Chernobyl, wow. looking at it from a systematic approach. And we, we took it from so many different levels of, of expertise in there so we could have a different set of eyes on it. So with that, it took some time. And then because it was county sh- sanctioned for this, the, the intentions of, of Chief uh, Hartwig there were incredible. That guy is like he is a chief's like a guy's chief mm-hmm. you know yeah. and that's the beauty of it is he did it just because there were so many missed um misrepresentations of what occurred during that event and i'll be honest with you like i went in thinking it was a way that i heard it before yeah yeah, yeah. and you know you get rumor mills and you hey i heard that this happened and this happened exactly you do and then when we dug into it it was interesting. We started, you know, we, we had access. They give us carte blanche on everything. So we had all the audio from, you know, police and fire and, and their dispatch systems. And, and we were able to talk with not just those people that were there 
where the patients were, the first in the building uh, with the SWAT commander and, and with those, the, the first medics and the people setting up their triage treatment areas. Uh, but we also had access to all everybody who did the transports. We had access to the helo, uh, the uh, helicopter evacs uh, guys. We had access to the uh, emergency management people. We had access to the, the hospital people who received them and the dispatchers. I mean, we basically interviewed everybody uh, a ton. And as all these interviews occurred and we got all the data points and things like that, things don't add up. Mm-hmm. Right off the bat, you know, so when we're looking at, at dispatch times, we're seeing this dispatch compared to police dispatch compared to this, you're having different times. And, and then when you're able to listen to them, it made sense because you're on an active shooter event. It's a dynamic situation. And so people were talking over each other. Dispatch wasn't able to hear when this person was on scene. You'd hear this person call multiple times trying to get a hold of this chief and they're being walked over on the radio. Things that happen all the time, especially during, you know, an event like that, let alone a mass casualty, you know, and, uh, Shit happens. that's it, man. That's how things go. And, uh, so then you're able to start seeing things where, yeah, they were, you know, they were doing this at that point and you could hear them on the radio saying that without a response back because no one heard them, uh, oh, because somebody else was talking over this and that. And, uh, so th- once we were starting to put a lot of these pieces to the puzzle together, you started realizing like, wow, this was a, this is a very complex response, and they did a, a ridiculously good job. And a lot of the things that came out in some of the other ones, even recent AARs, were um, completely wrong. Mm-hmm. And that was disturbing, right? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a disturbing thing when people, you know, and granted, okay, you don't have access to the people that we had access to or whatever, but to make assumptions in things is freaking ridiculous and it just it pisses the shit out of me um, well, when it, people take that extra step beyond what the data tells them well it's dangerous because you're going to get people to read that document at agencies that don't know any better or don't have access to the latest information or whatever the case may be and run with it and potentially change their agency's policies or TTPs or, or whatever training based on faulty information right and that's dangerous it is um and i can tell you the intentions of chief hartwig with the county Mm -hmm. doing this because it wasn't a county fire it was the city Mm -hmm. who a lot of those city guys were absorbed in and are now working for the county fire department and chief hartwig like really wanted this done comprehensively Mm -hmm. and it took time it took a lot of time for, for us to do that and you know even from the revisions of when we did the what we thought was the final, which was December 2nd of uh, last December 2nd. We were, it's been going through different editors and and going through different chiefs for validity of going through legal, going through all these things. And he just wanted it done right because he wanted to do it out of respect for the families Mm -hmm. that lost loved ones, the families that have injured uh, family members, and for his responders, who he is extremely proud of, man. And when you, you have a be. chief that, you know, cares that deeply, one, about the community, two, about the members of his department, that is super respectable, man. You yep. just don't see that all the time. Yeah. You have a lot of people that are really out for themselves on a lot of things, and the the staff there between Chief Hartwig and, and Porter that's not them. Like, they are out to do the right thing, to get the right information out, 
and let people know exactly what happened. The good, bad, and ugly. Yeah. But I can tell you, going in here, I thought it was going to be a different AAR than what it ended up being once we started talking to these people and seeing the timelines, seeing the reports from the autopsies to the injury reports to, to things like that, seeing how effective they were was eye-opening. It was it was incredible. And in many cases, you, you can't point to one person and be like, wow. You can in a couple areas. One is that SWAT commander was unbelievable. Like from the get-go, like so early on, and anybody when you read this, pay attention to to – the SWAT commander, right? And we did all these things anonymously, right? Uh, we ended up talking to a lot of people and becoming friends with a lot of these people. We kept it very anonymous when we wrote that. And it was some incredible decisions made early on that wasn't it wasn't the whole event, but it was so critical at that time and the right decisions were made that you're in hindsight you're like, that is brilliant. That is actually that was incredible. That made a huge impact on how everything beyond that went. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just talking with you and in, in, you know, reviewing the article and reading a part about the SWAT commander. I mean, me being in law enforcement, speaking from that standpoint, that's probably one of the gutsiest moves I've ever read about a SWAT commander making. Um, I, I gather to say you probably wouldn't get most SWAT commanders making that decision. Um, most are there to eliminate the threat, and rightfully so. Um, but he he was able to see, you know, the to- total picture of this event, look at it from that 30,000-foot view and realized he had enough law enforcement assets to deal with any potential threats based on the intelligence he was getting that he could afford to chop half his team to start doing patient triage, patient care, patient extraction, and that's huge right there. That was enormous because technically you wouldn't be able to put a rescue task force in at that point because it would still be considered hot, right. and he had law enforcement doing the extractions out to the hasty CCP, right. and that made an enormous difference. Uh, even when the first tactical medic went back in to, to start dealing with patients because he was clearing a room, right. you know, you're looking at, at like a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. And when he came out, the majority of those people were already taken out. Right. I mean, that's incredible. And that's what started. I mean, it started getting them in route to a hospital. Right. And I mean, if you would have done a, if you would have done a traditional rescue task force, going back to what we were talking about before, you would have had a delay in there because they had not completely cleared that, that building. And, and, you know, they were clearing people out. Well, guys were still clearing that first floor. They were clearing patients out after they moved beyond that conference room, and that was critical. Right. And uh, so, you know, the beauty of it is what people will read in this is they didn't follow the latest, greatest, whatever recommendation from whoever that was basing it on the last event. Right. And that last event really has no bearing on your next event in specifics. Right. right? You right. need to take what you can from it and glean the principles but when you nail it down going, oh, man, this is what we need to do exactly like this, it's, it's going to fall apart the next one, right? right? Absolutely. Because you can't predict that next one. And that, I think, was the beauty of that SWAT commander is he, although he's a SWAT commander, he always considered himself a student of the game. Mm-hmm. And all he did, he studied. And one of the big things he studied, and you'll read it in this report, is he studied the LAX incident to the point where he was asking questions and what were the friction points. And then he went back to their trainings in, in San Bernardino and put those same friction points into their scenarios for him, yeah. and found that like oh crap man like 
this would cause our system to take a crap. Right. And how are we going to do this? And they started coming up with solutions collectively as a team and then training on that and then training the officers on that. And come to find out, as you read in this AAR, a lot of those things that they gleaned from previous events and these principles that he was able to take that were problematic in previous events and implement them into solutions on how would we deal with it with what our organic assets are were techniques that they ended up using on San Bernardino uh, that worked. That's fantastic. You know, and you don't hear that a lot. Right. You, you know, know. Um, most people would go, oh, it's a vent at an airport. We don't respond to an airport. It's not relevant to us. But it is, right, because you're still going to need those same principles. You know, when we talk about principles like NFPA 3000, being able to do X, Y, and Z, right. it's regardless of where you're at, whether it's a guy on the 32nd floor shooting down at a concert of 100,000 people or whether you're at an airport or you're at uh, the IRC building in San Bernardino. Right. And those are the things that you need to you need to glean on, and he, he did it, like, effectively. Uh, but, you know, across the board with the fire response, mm-hmm. uh, did an incredible job at getting that first wave of patients off, thinking they may get a second. But when you look at those times of how many patients they treated and how quick they were off the scene en route to a hospital, that, I mean, that's how you can actually take people that are shot multiple times in the chest, and they all lived. They all lived. You know, uh, so you have you have that, and that's the problem. You know, when you look at the other AARs that are out there, specifically one, it has misrepresented things. There was something in there I want to say uh, where it has two deceased people were taken by law enforcement to a medical treatment facility. Yeah, it didn't happen, right? And and you will probably see this AAR out there. It's like a six page AAR, right? Um, and the work cited on it is like Los Angeles Times. Wow. So you know that's neat. So I guess you can you can cite newspapers as academic resources, but with that, making those assumptions that didn't happen, it didn't happen, you know, and that that's the thing, it didn't happen. When you read it, there were two people that were taken from inside to the HCCCP to the treatment triage area uh-huh. that were deceased, and as soon as they got to the treatment triage area, right there on the corner, they were taken over, and then a uh, and you'll see this in the paper, and then a makeshift morgue under a tree over off to the side away from everybody was made. They were never transported. They were never taken to the hospital. But by saying that, oh, law enforcement transported two people, then they were dead at the medical treatment facility. People will ask, you know, well, were they alive? Why did why did law enforcement? They, right. If they had law enforcement transported, they would have driven by paramedics. Why didn't they go with the paramedics? And it creates this liability of falsity. There's nothing true about it. Right. And you know when you get into you know you're going to see other things with that just smoked me too. Is like the IED reference. You know you know the the IED. Um, you know, technically the, the triage treatment area, and actually they misspeak and called the CCP. The CCP was actually on the opposite side of where they have it marked, and that was the triage treatment area that he was referring to. So the vernacular is, is completely wrong to begin with of what was used in the in the entire call. But when you look at that, you know, if those IEDs, you know, the IED did go off, um, you know, they would have been in a blast wave. Well, you know, it would be cool to be able to completely change how physics works and be able to get a blast wave off of smokeless powder in an 8-inch pipe bomb. Like, that would be awesome if that could happen. I don't even know, but... So, in other words, it was low explosives, not high explosives. It exactly was. It very much was. And a very small amount of that. It was actually taken right out of... You'll see it's taken right out of Inspire magazine from AQ. And, um, And so when you look at that, like, some shrapnel would have gone through the drywall inside... Nothing would have even come close to going through the rest of the building out the front windows and over to where they were. It wouldn't, it, there's, like, impossible. If aliens interdicted with uh, God, but they, it, it would not have happened. Uh, you probably wouldn't have gotten the majority of the windows blown out of 
the windows that were right next to where the backpack was. Yeah. Right? It's just a falsity. And so saying, like, oh, it was too close, whatever, you're, you're, you're making an assumption that's, that's sub-moronic. Well, and that's, and that's what I was talking about. You know, somebody's going to read that and make adjustments based on that to their TTPs. And it's going to get people killed. It is. It's, it's goofiness. You know, if you remember, like, you know, this happens all the time, right? If you look at some of the media reports right after Virginia Tech and things like that, it was show had everybody lined up in the hallways. Right. and right. You know, I remember that, that, yeah. None of it was. There was, you know, there was one teacher that was shot in the hallway. Uh, actually, another one shot in the back running away. But the other one, so there's one person shot in the hallway. Right. You know, everyone else was in the classroom. So a lot of that initial information that comes out uh, is not accurate, right? right? And a lot of it's coming from people that were in there that have cognitive problems when recalling it under that type of stress. I mean, you're a cop, man. You see it all the time, right? Like, you know, what did you see on the burglar? And they're like, oh, he was 6'3", this man, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, yeah, the dude was like 5'2", white, and whatever. You know, whatever. It's one of those things, you know. And and we even saw that, you know. It was interesting on the... We ended up having to address it as... uh, um, Who was it? HBO Showtime. Showtime started doing an active shooter series uh, this past year, yeah. And they highlighted all these different events. They did the polls. They did San Bernardino. They did Columbine. They went through all these things and did interviews. And there was an interview with um, with a woman who was inside in San Bernardino. Okay. And she was shot. And it was it's literally heart wrenching to listen to her at her interview. I'm sure. And it is. she talks about um, uh, going being taken out to the treatment triage area. And looking, I think she said, I can't remember what she said, looking to her left or something like that, and seeing two of her coworkers um, die in front of her. Uh-huh. And, um, yeah, that didn't happen. Yeah. You know? But think about the stress she was under. She right. probably saw coworkers die in front of her in the building, though. Right. But when they were out there, they weren't, there, were, there were two people that were brought there, so she may have seen people with, with uh, sheets over them, mm-hmm. over by that tree, if she did, could see them. But I think that kind of was hidden, but it couldn't, maybe not. There, um, but no one was alive and then died in the triage, triage treatment area. Everybody that was found alive at San Bernardino lived. Yeah. So you know, but it's it's a cognitive deal. That was there is no way that she has ever seen that amount of stress in her life. You know, oh, yeah. and right. and dude, everybody has it. You know, at a certain level under stressful that we see things. You know, uh, talking to responders. You know, I talked to some responders of an event that didn't happen too long ago that was a very large event. And they're like, you know, Sean, I swear that I did X, Y, and Z. And then when I listened to my radio traffic, you know, I did, you know, <laughs> Z, X, Y. He's right. like, and I would have sworn I would have done it, you know. And this is, you know, one of your responders, you know, right. who just, just, it was, you're in the fog of war, man, you know. And, uh, and so that keys keep relevant. So point of this whole thing is we did do a comprehensive analysis, and that was, that was by design, so it went through so many filters. We talked and reached out to so many people uh, from, you know, come to find out things you wouldn't even think of. The, the San Bernardino um, Unified School Board mm-hmm. Police Department, they have their own police department within the school, right. was one of the critical aspects of that because they actually had the comms that connected everybody together. So when we started talking to him, a lot of those pieces came together, and you wouldn't have thought that, right? You would have thought it would have been the first people on scene and this and this, but it was the guy that was shuffling the comms between the radios that actually had comms with everybody that could connect into this and this and this without having to go all the way through dispatch. That one linchpin right there. It was, and it was the linchpin you wouldn't expect. Right. 
And right. once you started drawing these things together, you started getting the accurate picture of what happened and how it rolled out. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, they did a phenomenal job. Mm-hmm. But at I the agree. same time, you know, the principles that I would take from that isn't I'm not going to model myself exactly after San Bernardino because your next event could be the guy 32nd floor up and it has mm-hmm. no relevance on what you're doing. But if you look at the principles of what they did, it's the thing. And you know what they did is they didn't follow the latest and greatest guideline for active shooter response from the government. Right. What they did is they did what they do day to day because they know it so well. And what's interesting about San Bernardino is it's not uncommon for those guys to run on shootings, like gang-related, drug-related type of shootings in that area where they have three, four, or five people shot. Right. Now, granted, those are usually handguns, and it wasn't like what they ran into, but it's not the outlier form. Right. They've been and they've seen it. They before. get on it and they do their job. And, you know, PD does, they work with PD a lot. And when they got in, what they did time and time again, every interview, is they're like, what did you follow? What training did you have? What guideline did you have? And every single one of them is like, we do what we did day to day. Yeah. We just up the tempo. Yeah. And that's why it went so well. Because they didn't have to learn this whole new way of, of I'm going to do it like this all the time. And it's almost like when you learn you know, CQBs, you, you learn all this goofy stuff sometimes in SWAT school. And then you talk to people that do it all the time, you know, right. overseas and stuff like this. And they're like, hey, man, like, I'm going to clear this team, whether it's a hostage rescue, whether it's a bear, whether it's a whatever. I clear the T the same way. Right. I clear that L the same way. Right. I'm not going to create, you know, just because it's a hostage risk, I'm going to just change it and I'm going to do this versus that. Right. And and it seems like that is where where consistency comes from. Right. Don't make it more complicated than it is. Yeah. You know, cops are cops, medics are medics, firefighters are firefighters. Let them do their job. Like you said, they up the tempo and they realize the criticality of the situation and they got the job done. That's it, man. It's a, They self-organize. People know what the outcome needs to be. Right. And you get it. And so in it, the, you'll see a lot of stuff. We took an HRO approach in that paper, mm-hmm. um, which is a different look at how it is. So it's not like, hey, they did X, Y, and Z, should have done this, mm-hmm. right? That's not a thing. And that's the problem with a lot of things that are out there. AARs is, is the armchair quarterbacking Absolutely. that goes on because, yeah, we can write an AAR, and we know everything that happened now from 2020. Right. It's hindsight, right? Uh, but in the end, what we cared about is like, okay, so you were making a decision. You know, Brennan had to make a decision. What information did you have at that specific time in that in that spectrum? Right. Right. To because make that most of the time, you're going to have three things, three options. Right. You're going to have no information, but you got to act. Right. Right. You're going to have limited information, or you can have wrong information. Right. Right. So as people are running out of that building, you know, originally it was three shooters. Right. I remember was that. There, right. Uh, and there weren't. Uh, and we see that in every event, right? There's, there's supposed to be a couple shooters in Virginia Tech, right? There's this, there's this. So you get these inaccurate things. So we want to know, like, what information did you have? And what's interesting about that is it's basically OODA loop probing at that point. So you've got to act, right? There's, there's people dying in there. You've got to do something, and you've got to engage. And if you engage and your assumption was wrong, it's not like it's a negative because what you did is you just found some truth in there because this was not accurate. Right. So it guided you closer to what you're doing. By, so by engaging, it's not that you make mistakes in that environment. You're working in a complex adaptive system. You're in a nonlinear event, right, that you cannot predict right. by definition. So, you know, that's why, like, if I'm going to do it exactly like this, that never works. Linear approaches, right, like your threat and all this other crap from the Hartford consensus is, is literally a crock of crap. You can't overlay that over every event. Right. And you've got to actually think. And all of us can do it. 
except we feel like, oh, we got to create these stupid acronyms for everything acronyms, and, and these, these easy buttons for stuff yeah. uh, so you can apply it. And the problem with that is that's a linear approach that falls apart in nonlinear environments. So, Right, because it's not just you. You have your offenders has a say in it. Your environment has a say in it. Like we were talking about, all the different responding agencies have a say in how this plays out. Oh gosh, it, it, it's it is it is so far beyond. Like even if you wanted to do a mathematical or physics approach and create a parabolic equation, like you are so far into chaos in complexity theory that you don't even need to go one third of the way of the responding agencies to show the complexity of it. Right. So uh, you know, so many things are interdependent on it that that's what prohibits you from saying this is exactly our guidelines. Right. And you know, when you talk to folks you know that have been through this and and even you know i want to speak out of turn but even with las vegas is you know they realize like hey everything we're kind of training for changed because it wasn't for this <laughs> and you know in the end it becomes almost a commander's intent that mm-hmm. you have to be able to adapt on I, the fly i agree with and that 100%. go for it and i think that when you have all these agencies responding they self-organize they mm-hmm. know that the threat needs to be mitigated they know these casualties have to get out they know they got to get their ass out of that treatment area to to a hospital quick it's a right. surgeon and at the same time you know just to to hit it is is when you read that they were falling right in line with reed's paper mm-hmm. you know so not one tourniquet was applied and not one tourniquet was needed right. right a lot of thoracic injuries a lot of abdominal injuries too and you'll kind of read in the paper why why that occurred but uh you had torso Right for right. for lack of a better term, right from, really from from the belt line mm-hmm. to the neck type of thing, uh, and uh, and and that's what we see a lot of. Obviously, there's not a lot we can do for that, except get them the hell off. Right, and the, the way surgeon. that it, way that it worked out there, they did it effectively and got them off scene extremely rapidly from the time. I mean, there was no time wasted when uh, they went from that CCP by vehicles of opportunity to the triage treatment area and into the uh, to the medical. Center's right there, Loma Linda, and all that's right, right close by, and they I think a couple went to Riverside too. But um, yeah, so that thing's coming out. We will post it on Facebook of where you can download it, and uh, and that'll give you an accurate portrayal, tongue in cheek, of uh, of Same. the San Bernardino event with a lot of good lessons learned. It talks about HRO. It talks about a lot of other stuff in there. So each part is kind of written in the form of uh, almost an NTSB okay. type of format because if we did this as a strictly academic, which everybody wants to do, the problem with writing an academic paper on that, you have to put in... Um, outside the fact that nobody reads the whole thing. Right, outside the thing that nobody reads the whole thing. Um, in an academic paper, you really need to be able to put in and publish references that are proven um, standards, okay. if you will, right? Almost like theories that have been validated uh-huh. uh, and accepted practices. And the problem with active shooter is what is the accepted practice? It's going to change every damn time, man. Right. You know, you, you can't predict what that next one's going to be. Right. So that practice, so I can tell you San Bernardino did not follow a practice if that's what we were looking at, and they're highly effective. Right. So, so, so we couldn't really go for a true academic on there, although people try and shove the square into the circle and write these things. So we went with an NTSB, which means like there's multiple variables, there's different scopes, so we try to hit it from this is what the fire guy saw, this is what the, the first SWAT guy saw, this is what the SWAT commander was doing, this is what 
EMS saw. This is what the Hilo guys saw. This is kind of what it is. So it's almost like a Pulp Fiction type of, of thing that goes through. So you can kind of see it in the eyes of who you're interested mm-hmm. in developing a program for, depending on what who you work for. Yeah. So I think there's portions in there for first responders, whether you're law enforcement, FD, EMS, but there's also for receiving hospitals. There's also for emergency management systems. There's also for incident command and things like that. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm looking forward to rereading the whole thing again, digesting it. So that is it, man. We're like an hour and seven, so we may have to right. bust this mother in to two or just... Just post it. Post it, whatever. Yeah. Meetings tomorrow. Yeah, sure. This is late Sunday night. All right. Cool. Yeah, meetings tomorrow. So. All right. If you guys have any questions, hit us up. And, no, uh, hit Sarah up. Yeah, hit Sarah up. Don't <laughs> hit us up. Sorry, Sarah. Just kidding. Yeah. All right. You guys, take it easy. We'll see you.